Welcome to Catacomb Theology, a podcast exploring all manners of Christianity as it relates to the church and world of today, as well as how it is related to the church and world of the past. I am your host, Jane Castile, and I am very glad to see you all back for another episode of Catacomb Theology. Um, today is we're going to be catching up on our bi-week episode. Um, I have been absent for the past week, so um, there was not an episode last week. However, um, today we are going to be going in the third chapter of J.I. Packer's Heritage of Anglican Theology, and we will be going through that monster of a chapter. It is a long episode, but it is a very good one. In fact, um, quite humorous if I do say so myself. So, without further ado, chapter 3 of J.I. Packer's Heritage of Anglican Theology. Chapter 3, Puritan Theology. The Puritan Character. Puritanism is a point of view that came into focus while Elizabeth was on the throne, and that point of view is still present among evangelical Anglicans. One of the reasons I know this is that I myself am part of it. I have written a book on the Puritan heritage, A Quest for Godliness, the Puritan Vision of the Christian Life. I have written an extensive and enthusiastic foreword to a book by the Wheaton Professor Emeritus Leland Reichen called Worldly Saints, the Puritans as they really were. And I have written in various places on the theology of the Westminster Confession and Catechisms in the Directory for the Public Worship of God. All documents produced by the Westminster Assembly in the 1640s. I claim these documents as part of the Anglican heritage because they were produced by a body of theologians, 90% of whom were Anglican clergy. This point of view is not one you will find expressed in many books. It is the Packer perspective. I tell you right at the outset where I am coming from so that you may feel free to adjust or discount value judgments that I shall pass. If you see reason to do that, you may say to yourself that Man Packer is a bit of an eccentric on the Puritans anyway, and I do not have to regard his pronouncement as if they had papal authority. That is perfectly true. On the other hand, I believe I have reason for the perspective that I embody and that I shall present to you now. In 1646, John Gree, 1601-1649, wrote the character of an old English Puritan or nonconformist. Geary, an Anglican clergyman of Puritan sympathies, had the misfortune to be a royalist by conviction and so to support King Charles I in the Civil War. As a result of that, a parliamentary committee on scandalous ministers had removed him from his pastorate and he was living in retirement. For Geary, the old English Puritan represented an ideal of Christian discipleship, on which he wrote this little tract. And nonconformist meant a person who had problems with some of the ceremonies and perhaps also some of the wording in the prayer book, someone who wanted change and may have even campaigned for change. 
Guiri's work is a character study, and the Puritanism I carry the torch for is first and foremost an understanding of the character of Christian discipleship. It is a position, in other words, that rightly comes under the heading of spirituality or Christian devotion. Puritan Devotion The writers of Puritan books saw themselves as pilgrims in the conflict. Pilgrimage was a concept well understood during the centuries before the Reformation. Pilgrims were people who trekked from a starting point, their home usually, to some sacred place for some sacred purpose. The Puritans saw themselves as John Bunyan's pilgrim sees himself in the pilgrim's progress, as trekking from this world to heaven. The Puritans' conflict had to do with their acute awareness of the reality of Satan and his hosts, and their knowing that Christians on pilgrimage through this world to glory will be opposed by Satan and his hosts all the way. Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, Part 1, is a string of battles, battles for the mind and in some cases battles for the body as well. That is how Bunyan pictures the Christian life and experience. The pilgrims are in conflict. Christian life is spiritual warfare. All the Puritans, from the earliest to the latest, saw life like this and taught others to see it like this as well. The Puritans were people who could be described in five terms. They were Biblicists, Piousts, Churchly Christians, Two-Worldly Christians, and Dramatic in their outlook on both their own pilgrimage experience and the life of the church in this world. I will discuss the first three terms here, giving extended attention to the churchly matters, before returning to the fourth and fifth terms later in the chapter. What does that mean? Biblicist means that they were thoroughly reformational in their insistence that God's word written is the definitive source of all the truth about God that we are permitted to know. Scripture is God's telling us what he has to say to us about himself and about human beings in relation to him. The conscience of the Christian individual must therefore be attuned to Scripture. This means that you do not believe anything for which you do not see a biblical reason, and everything that is put to you is to be tested by the teaching of Scripture. You ask for biblical proof. You recognize, I hope, the basic mindset of modern evangelicals in that. This is something that has not changed. Pietist is a word that church historians use as a label for all those who think that one's personal relationship with God is the most important matter in one's own life, and therefore that in determining one's personal priorities, fellowship with God through devotion and obedience comes first. That is in contrast with those, whether found in the Orthodox and Roman Catholic churches, or, I am sorry to say, within Anglicanism, who think that you serve God best by advancing the interests of the church, and that your personal piety should be absorbed into the service of the church. This has been spelled out in different ways by those who believe it to be the New Testament point of view. Pietists believe that in the New Testament order of things, as also in the Psalms most certainly, and in the prophets too, the individual's life with God is the most important thing. Here again is a dimension of Christian understanding in which I trust you go along with the Puritans, 
with the reformers also, though the Puritans made more of this than ever the reformers did in their public testimony to what true Christianity requires. Pietism, denoting the quality to which the adjective pietist refers, is used in many textbooks of church history with negative as well as positive implications, especially in regard to pietists going back to the 18th century. Historians are thinking particularly of the children of the evangelical revivals on both sides of the Atlantic, Britain's evangelical revival, and America's Great Awakening. The historian will say that giving priority to one's relationship with God is all very well, but when pietists allow their concern about a personal walk with God to elbow out concern about society, politics, and the general culture, they are narrowing their understanding of discipleship in a way that scripture will not warrant. I think that is true. But what is not true is that the Puritans were pietists of that sort. They were, in fact, Christian humanists. They were very concerned about godliness in society. They were very concerned about the sanctified use of all the powers that God gives us, including literary skills and artistic gifts. They were not always given opportunity to make the most of that concern in practice, but it was there. And it is thoroughly wrong to accuse them of being pietists in a somewhat barbarian sense, just as it is wrong to accuse them of not being concerned about the church or the honor of God in the church. As we shall see, the Puritan constituency surfaced in the 1560s in the reign of Elizabeth as a body of people who thought that God was not being sufficiently honored in the Elizabethan Church of England, and that changes were needed so that he might be glorified more. All the Puritans were church-oriented in this very fundamental sense. The honor of God and the church was a priority for them, and they maintained that a person who was truly godly in personal terms, pietists in the good sense, would most certainly be concerned about the honor of God in his church. This is fundamental to understanding the Puritan mindset. An important part of the Puritan story is that many of them forfeited their ministries of the gospel as a result of campaigning for changes in the church. From roughly 1560 to 1640, they were willing to go to prison and accept eviction from their pastorates in order to maintain their convictions without compromise. Their description as churchly, reforming and non-conforming, indeed fits here. Reforming means that they campaigned for changes in the church so that God might be more fully honored by its public worship and order. Non-conforming means that when they could not get the changes they thought necessary, they often found themselves conscientiously obliged to stop doing specific things required in the Anglican prayer book thereby risking discipline for not doing them. They were basically saying, these things are wrong, we cannot do them and have a clear conscience. The four objectionable practices, which I'll discuss shortly, were the requirement of the surplus for preachers making the sign of the cross in baptism, the use of the wedding ring in the marriage service, and kneeling in communion service. Objections to Ceremony All of this, as I have said, was beginning to happen in the 1560s. The name Puritans was a term of abuse, a demeaning word, a mocking word implying contempt. 
They were called Puritans because they wanted a purer church and a purer pattern of Christian life in the community. The first Puritans won this label by objecting to things that may seem small to us, but they were big things at the beginning of Elizabeth's reign following Bloody Mary's attempt to take the English church back to Rome. It was a time when most Englishmen were aware that the old Roman pattern of worship must be left behind so that something more scriptural and godly might take its place. Their view of the Anglican prayer book was that it had started well, but stopped before the work of reshaping worship was finished. As mentioned above, the Puritans identified four particular ceremonies that the prayer book required, but they said it ought to be abolished. Again, these may seem quite trivial things, and indeed opponents of the Puritans in the Elizabethan church were saying already in the 1560s through the 1590s that these things were indeed trivial and not worth bothering about, that they were adiaphora, a Greek word for things that do not matter, such that they make no substantial difference, but to the Puritans they did make a difference. The surplus. One of these was the requirement that the minister leading public worship must wear a kind of white tent called a surplice. Anglican clergy still wear the surplice, and the argument for doing so is that it is a kind of uniform, like a police or military uniform, that helps worshipers remember that the minister belongs to a category of Christians who have been set apart to lead worship and shepherd the congregation. In other words, attention is being called to the man's public identity, thus diverting attention away from any personal oddities he might have in his dress. That was the defense of the surplus under Elizabeth, and it is the defense of the surplus today. Some people think it is a perfectly reasonable defense, others do not. Abolish the surplus, said the Puritans. They thought of it as a Romish rag, suggesting that the priest is a holier person and nearer to God than the rest of us, which would be utterly wrong. In its place, the Puritans preferred the simple Genevan gown, the sign of the cross. Puritans also objected to the requirement in the prayer book that the priest, after pouring water on the head of a child being baptized, must then make the sign on the child's forehead. This is something that clergy baptizing infants have done since very early in the church. But the Puritans said that the pouring of the water itself is the sufficient outward and visible sign in the sacrament of baptism. You will recall that the sacramental idea that God has established outward and visible signs guaranteeing promises and realities, that is guaranteeing those promises both as genuine words from himself and guaranteeing that believers enjoy the realities promised. In the case of baptism, the promise signified by the sign is for a new life of union with Christ in which sin is forgiven and our persons are accepted. Baptism is a rite of cleansing and new birth. In the case of the Lord's Supper, the guarantee is of the promises of pardon and new life and the sustaining of new life, just as bread and wine, ingredients in a meal, sustain physical life. Those promises are fulfilled to those who receive the bread and wine in faith. So the Puritans wanted to make the point that going under the water as the water is poured is the outward invisible sign. You go under the water, you come up, as it were, out of the water. My Baptist friends think that you actually have to be submerged for this outward invisible sign to be clear. 
Others, including Anglicans, Presbyterians, and Methodists, deem it sufficient to have water poured on the head of the candidate. I find it hard to believe that the amount of water is a very important thing. I think of the amount of water as one of the adiaphora of which I was speaking, things that do not matter. The Puritans thought it was important not to make the sign of the cross after baptism because that is not the outward invisible sign. Rather, they thought it important to concentrate on the pouring of the water and the meaning of the act, which is the visible sign. They said that if you keep the pre-Reformation sign of the cross, you are encouraging the idea of baptismal regeneration, which they said is a superstition from the beginning of the Puritan movement onward to Anglican evangelicalism at the present day. It has been clear in people's minds that without faith, there is no regeneration. So baptism is to be seen as personalizing to the candidate, adult or infant, the promise of new life in Christ. The candidate, however, needs to exercise personal faith in the Savior in order for the promised gift to be received and possessed. The Wedding Ring The third rite or ceremony to which the Puritans objected was the giving of a wedding ring and the marriage service. It is a very old Christian custom, going back to the Middle Ages, that the bridegroom presents the bride with a ring. More recently, the bride typically presents the bridegroom with a ring as well, so that the action is mutual and does not portray taking possession of the bride, which was probably what the medievals had in mind. The Puritans thought that the medieval idea of marriage as a sacrament could not be rid from folks' minds unless the use of a wedding ring were stopped, because the Roman Catholics regarded the ring as the outward and visible sign of the inward and spiritual grace that made marriage a sacrament. So, abolish wedding rings, the Puritans said. Kneeling at the table. The Puritans also wanted to abolish kneeling at the Lord's table to receive communion. Kneeling is the posture of worship, and before the Reformation, everybody knelt in order to worship the presence of Christ and the elements, which were believed to be transubstantiated. The Puritans saw that as precisely what Christians ought not to do at the Lord's table, though the prayer book service required it. So they said, abolish the kneeling, which encourages the old superstition. You can see their reasoning in each of these objections. It is pastoral reasoning every time. They were saying, in effect, we have to get superstition out of the hearts and minds of English people in order to ground them in the gospel, which the prayer book and the articles otherwise express so very clearly. For the Puritans, all of this seemed important, but as I have said, defenders of the established Elizabethan order viewed these matters from the start as merely adiaphora, links with the past that really made no difference. You need only tell people what they do not mean. There is no need to abolish them in order to make the point. Richard Hooker, in his fifth book of The Laws of Ecclesiastical Polity, goes through the prayer book and vindicates these four ceremonial practices along with everything else in the prayer book. And frankly, I think he has the better of the argument against Puritan criticism. If you are interested in this, read the fifth book and see what a strong, reasonable defense can be made of the prayer book order as it stands without further adjustment. But in the 1560s, the people who earned themselves the name Puritan began to complain and protest about these things, demanding to have them changed. Objections to Episcopacy 
1570, a young man in his 30s named Thomas Cartwright, professor of theology at Cambridge University, began to argue in the course of his lectures on the Book of Acts not only that these ceremonies should be no part of pure Christian worship, but that the diocesan pattern of Episcopal government should not exist either. He contended, as modern Presbyterians, of course, would still, that Presbyterianism is reflected and embodied in the life of the early church, as the Book of Acts reports it, and Presbyterianism, the Geneva way, ought to be the pattern of church government in England also. The Puritans, most of them younger folk, many of whom were drawn from among the undergraduates fascinated by Cartwright's lectures, now began to campaign for the abolition of episcopacy and its replacement by a Presbyterian church order. Not all Puritans at this time were against Episcopal church order, and some who call themselves Puritans today, like me, are not against Episcopal order. But the ones who were against it immediately made themselves notorious, and from 1570 onward, the popular image of a Puritan was of one who wanted the Presbyterian church order introduced and certain prayer book ceremonies abolished. They caused commotion with pamphlets that had a certain strength in Parliament, where a number of members sympathized with their complaint that the Church of England was only halfly reformed, to use a famous phrase. They were becoming such a nuisance in England that Elizabeth took steps to insist that her bishops come down on them heavily, and the bishops did, seeing themselves as officers of the crown. The result was that some Puritan clergy lost their livelihoods, and other Puritan clergy were fined and became notorious. Puritanism, as a movement for reforming the outward order of the church, was compelled by the end of Elizabeth's reign in 1603 to go underground. The Puritans' desire for change was still there, but their priorities increasingly changed from the 1570s onward. The Puritans acknowledged evangelism and pastoral care as the first priorities for leaders in the church, all those ordained as clergy. The desire for an adjusted church order did not die, it remained part of their ideal and was still in their minds as part of the ideal when, in 1640, the so-called Long Parliament, summoned by Charles I, though it defied him almost from the moment it gathered, began to look at things in the church and make reforming gestures of its own. But from the 1570s through to 1640, nothing could be done politically to change church order. Only Parliament could do that. As the Puritans increasingly saw from 1570 onward that evangelism and pastoral care in their parishes were priority number one, they developed a pattern of institutional evangelism by catechizing. All Anglican clergy were supposed to preach a sermon on Sunday morning and then catechize the children of the parish on Sunday afternoon in church. There is indeed a catechism for children in the prayer book. All Anglican clergy were supposed to preach a sermon on Sunday morning and then catechize the children of the parish on Sunday afternoon in church. There is indeed a catechism for children in the prayer book. And in the 1570s, the Dean of St. Paul's Cathedral in London, Alexander Nowell, produced a catechism for adults. 
Thus the question and answer form drilled children and adults in Reformation and Biblical truth in the 16th century. Though it does not appear that non-Puritan clergy took this very seriously, or did much of it, the Puritan clergy increasingly emphasized it. Through this institutional event, they taught basic catechetical truths in a way that was intended to lead children to a personal faith. Puritan Preaching the Puritans then developed a pattern of preaching in Sunday morning service that constantly focused on leading people further along in the track in personal faith, strengthening their trust in Christ and in biblical promises, strengthening their obedience to the command of God and scripture. In other words, making faithful disciples out of them. Puritan preaching was marked by a plain style, as contrasted with the style developed by the best preachers in non-Puritan Anglicanism. People like Richard Hooker preaching from the 1570s into the early 1590s, and Lancelot Andrews, a bishop and a very learned man. Then there was John Donne, who had been brought up Roman Catholic, one of the Christian world's top poets. His range was narrow, but when he focused on matters of Christian devotion, he was superb. His piety was undoubtedly Puritan in style. Nonetheless, when Don preached, and there were eight volumes of his printed sermons to prove this, he allowed himself, like Andrews and Hooker, to become literary and fanciful in how he expressed things. This meant that the congregation could simply sit back and listen to a performance rather than be summoned to deeper commitment, purer and stronger faith and fuller discipleship, as in the preaching of men like Richard Baxter, whose sermons are described as plain and downright. By 1640, the difference between Puritan-type preaching and Anglican-type preaching was well established in people's minds. If the man was known as a Puritan, you would get a plain and pressing downright sermon. That is Baxter's description in the preface to his Treatise on Conversion. Today, in evangelical churches, preachers usually preach to deepen discipleship, and there is ordinarily an evangelistic dimension to their sermons. They preach to make sure everybody in the congregation has come to personal faith in the Lord Jesus. They seldom preach about social, political, and cultural affairs, and some never do. They concentrate instead on using the sermon to advance personal discipleship. Hooker Andrews, Don, and many others following in their footsteps used the sermon to demonstrate their mastery both of Christian theology and of literary language. They thought that by putting on this show of elegance and eloquence, they were honoring God. I do not say they were not, I am only saying I do not think they did much to deepen discipleship, and that indeed was their reputation. By 1640, everybody understood that the Puritans wanted to bring you to faith and make a real Christian out of you. And the non-Puritan Anglicans, well, they preached from time to time, but their critics often regarded their preaching as akin to play-acting. The perception regarding Puritan preaching had arisen from the fact that the Puritans had preached this way ever since the late Elizabethan era, when Richard Greenham had set the style. Greenham had been a fellow of Pembroke College, Cambridge. He left the college probably because he decided to get married, all the fellows of Cambridge colleges in those days had to be bachelors. He became rector of a little country church six miles outside Cambridge. What he was doing there became well known in Cambridge, and folks used to ride out and attend his services to their benefit. 
Then a man named William Perkins, who had spent all his life in the town of Cambridge, became the regular preacher at St. Andrew, the great church in Cambridge, and he preached the way Greenham did in an expository manner, bringing scripture warrant for everything he said. Greenham and Perkins preached in an evangelistic way, constantly laboring to bring people to a living faith in Christ. They preached in a discipling way, covering the whole range of topics necessary to disciple people properly. Perkins became the C.S. Lewis of the Puritan movement. He published a whole string of little books that were immediately clear and attractive to people, books on aspects of personal religion. These were very widely circulated in England, which had no such devotional books. In English, except for those written by Roman Catholic authors who challenged the reformational religious viewpoint of England's established church, many other Greenham works were passed around in manuscript form, but these began to be published only at the end of his life. Perkins was determined to refute devotional Catholic authors by producing good quality devotional writings of his own. His books became the wellspring of a positive river of Puritan devotional literature, a river flowing wide and strong by 1640. Man after man of Puritan pastoral ideals published books from his sermons, and they were printed and circulated. Richard Baxter did this better than anybody else. He was the classic practical Puritan writer. His first work, The Saint's Everlasting Rest, became an instant classic and bestseller from the time it appeared in 1650. He remained the best-selling devotional writer in England until his death in 1691 and indeed for some time after. So although the Puritans' original political program had temporarily been shelved, an evangelistic and pastoral program had taken its place. The leaders in the program were clergy, Oxford and Cambridge graduates. They thought of themselves as a brotherhood and a fellowship. They would write to each other and meet together, and their families intermarried. By 1640, pastoral Puritanism was a power in the land. Puritan Devotion Revisited the Archbishop of Canterbury from 1633 was William Laud, who operated in double harness with King Charles I. With the king's approval, Laud made his own protégés, bishops, and they all held a form of theology that the Puritans, who were reformed in the 16th century sense of the word, considered Arminian. So by 1640, there was alienation between the Puritan constituency and the rest of the Church of England, most of all because bishops were allowing distorted doctrine, Arminianism, to be taught. The Arminian type of Christianity de-emphasized personal conversion and personal discipleship, reducing Christian discipleship to observing the established order, which meant that it did not center on the heart in the way that all Puritan ministry did. As noted earlier, Laud's vision of good Christianity, which meant good Anglican loyal churchmanship, was that it works from the outside in, Get people observing the prayer book, pattern of worship, and faithfully coming to church Sunday by Sunday, and the heart will fall into line with the habit. The Puritans started from the other end, as Augustine and Luther and Calvin had done, the Reformation way, as we have seen. You start with the heart, and then you make sure that the outward habit of devotion expresses the heart. 
The practice of personal devotion and family devotions, and certainly Sunday devotion in church, were part of it. But all this needed to arise from the heart's genuine faith and devotion. As I have argued, the Puritans were Biblicists, Pietists, and churchly in their understanding of Christianity. Another word I use to describe them is two-world. If you read Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, you will find right from the start that when Bunyan's Pilgrim becomes concerned about his own unconverted state, the hope of heaven is central in what he wants and at present realizes he does not have. The celestial city is the goal to which he sets out when he becomes a pilgrim. That is perfect, typical Puritanism. All Puritans knew that heaven is more important than earth, and that all decisions in this world should be made in the light of the fact that another world is coming. Just as hell is infinitely worse than life in this world, so heaven is infinitely better. Keep your eyes on heaven, the Puritans urged. Make sure the life you are living keeps the goal of heaven in view. That is basic to the Puritan point of view. When we read the New Testament and see how much it says about hoping in the coming of Christ and all that this will bring, we find ourselves wondering whether this is not indeed the mainstream Christian perspective. Perhaps we 21st century Christians, who focus so much on God's blessing now, which of course is real and wonderful, have become off-center in not talking with equal emphasis and focus and enthusiasm about heaven and the hope of glory. C.S. Lewis is the modern prophet who shows us the way. Lewis, among his other excellencies, is heaven-conscious in all he writes. This, I believe, is as much mainstream Christianity as any of the other aspects of Lewis's sense of things. The Puritans had this heaven-consciousness in spades. They were too worldly in their perspective, and they were prepared, therefore, to suffer in this world in any way they had to in order to be faithful to the Lord and to ensure that spiritually they stayed on the path that leads to glory, the path of obedience and fidelity to the word. I also used the term dramatic in my earlier list of five qualities in the Puritan vision of life. This came to mark the English people generally toward the end of Elizabeth's reign. Elizabeth, remember, died in 1603. On the secular front, suddenly people, at least in the towns and particularly in London, became interested in the theater, in drama on the stage, and in being in the audience while dramas were played out. This was the age when Shakespeare shot into prominence. And not only Shakespeare, other successful dramatists producing plays included Christopher Marlowe, Francis Beaumont, and John Fletcher. It was the law of supply and demand. There were theaters, and the theaters wanted plays. This had not happened on such a scale before the 1580s, and suddenly it was happening. If I may describe it psychologically, up to the 1580s, religious writings for people's lives had drawn on the resources of the left hemisphere of the brain, which favors logic. This was true of both Puritan and non-Puritan devotional writing, including Roman Catholic books in England. But the brain also has a right hemisphere for art, imagination, pictures, and drama. In the 1580s, suddenly the right side of the brain was more fully brought into play, and the dramatic dimension of the Christian life became a central theme in religious literature. 
as you find in the writing of William Perkins of Cambridge, as well as in the writings of his preaching model, Richard Greenham, and in the writings of Puritans who came after. What was this dramatic dimension? It highlighted the Christian's fight with indwelling sin. This sin had been dethroned in your new birth, but is constantly marauding in your spiritual system, trying to distract you from obedience, trying to allure you into disobedience, trying like a sort of devilish second self to reclaim dominion over you. That is a battle you have to face up to and fight all your days. Behind and beyond that, there is the battle with Satan and all the subtle things Satan is doing and shaping or misshaping your circumstances in order to trip you up and get you to betray the Lord and be false to his word and sin in one way or another. And you are fighting not only sin and Satan, but also the world, which is Satan's kingdom. You are fighting the world, the flesh and the devil all your days. This ongoing conflict is one of the great and constant themes in all Puritan devotional writing. Never let anyone tell you that nobody knew about spiritual warfare until the charismatic movement in the 1960s. The Puritans knew all about it. To prove that, you need only read Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress and William Gurnall's The Christian in Complete Armor, a classic exposition of Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. The developed Puritan mindset, along with its biblicist, pietist, churchly, and two-worldly dimensions, is also firmly marked by this awareness of the inner life drama in which the battle must go on if you are going to stay on track as a faithful believer. While this is something on which many evangelicals are not strong or clear, the Puritans were very strong and clear on it, and they can serve as our mentors. The Puritans as Churchmen Being faithful churchmen was a focus in Puritanism that is particularly relevant in our study of Anglican theology. Under Elizabeth, as we have seen, the Puritans sought further reformation of the prayer book, order through the abolition of superstitious ceremonies. To this concern was added two other matters affecting church order. The first had to do with the quality of ministers. At the beginning of Elizabeth's reign in 1558, following the reign of terror that Mary had staged during the previous five years, the church faced a shortage of competent clergy. To fill the vacant pulpits, all sorts of incompetent clergy were rustled up and ordained without any sort of theological training. Very soon, the Puritans recognized that this was not adequate. It was producing substandard ministry. They began to campaign that the royal treasury should set apart money for ministry training of godly young men. The Puritans, of course, wanted these men to become Puritan clergy, although they termed it godly clergy. The two notions, it seems, merged into one by design. Suffice it to say that this plea was not heeded. The government under Elizabeth did nothing to encourage the training of Puritan-type clergy. The second matter affecting church order was the attitude of the monarch. Elizabeth was a shrewd governor. She considered the Church of England her Church of England. Constitutionally, she was its supreme governor. The Act of Uniformity in 1559 had made her so. Henry VIII, her father, had himself legislated as supreme head of the church. She was a little more modest. Headship, she felt, was something that the clergy from the archbishop and downward should fill. 
They were the spiritual leaders, but she was the supreme governor, making sure that established church order was faithfully observed. Elizabeth wanted this church to be politically mainstream in the sense that it would hold Englishmen together. It would not please everybody perfectly, since there were the recusant Roman Catholics and Catholic-minded folk in the church on the one wing, just as there were Puritans on the other wing wanting further reformation in the church. Elizabeth thought that the right course was to sustain the church about halfway between them. She did not possess a strong theological conscience, though there seems no doubt that in her own way she was a Christian. She did not understand, therefore, how strongly theological conviction was at work in the minds and hearts of the people on the wings, nor would she ever grasp that. When the Puritans asked her to make reforms in the church, when they put up members of parliament to introduce bills requiring change in the prayer book, and so on, and there was quite a bit of that in the 1570s and 1580s, Elizabeth responded in an executive way, ensuring that the pleas for change went unheeded, just as the pleas for money to train up Puritan ministers fell on deaf ears. Likewise, the Puritans campaigned for better quality ministers. They were still beating this drum in the 1640s when, under the Long Parliament, which was engaged in the Civil War against the King at the time, a committee for scandalous ministers was set up, staffed by Puritan folk who ejected between 2,000 and 3,000 clergy from their parishes. The Puritans were basically saying, we have inspected these fellows and they are incompetent, so they must go. Available young Puritan ministers could be placed in the newly vacant pulpits so that a real Puritan ministry would go on all over England. That is what happened during the 1640s. You may wonder how this could happen while a civil war raged in England. The short answer is that the civil war was a matter of two armies marching around England, living off the land, and every now and then engaging in battle. Thus, the war was not so disruptive to English life that the Committee for Scandalous Ministers could not seek to purge the church at the same time, and it did. The Puritan ministers in the 1570s and 1580s also tried to set up a shadow Presbyterian system across England. These same ministers within their respective areas would gather for meetings called prophesyings. Someone would preach for an hour, then another minister would preach for about 15 minutes, amplifying and adding to what the first preacher had said. Then there would be discussion by all the ministers. Lay people from the participating parishes were all encouraged to come and listen, though they did not share in the discussion. It was a clergy affair. In these prophesyings, the minister who did the initial exposition would seek to expound a scripture passage properly with a focus on discipleship. The prophesyings did not involve seditious preaching about how bad the church was or how this or that in the church must be changed or how these ministers should organize to try and make such change happen. That, however, is what Elizabeth assumed the prophesyings must be. She was convinced that such preaching would lead to sedition inevitably, so she was against such preaching in the church. Eventually, she insisted that the Archbishop of Canterbury at the time, Edmund Grindle, suppress all the prophesyings throughout the country. He was to tell all the diocesan bishops to enforce this prohibition. Grindle, however, wrote a brave yet respectful letter to Elizabeth, informing her that he knew the prophesyings were doing much good, and that he could not in good conscience suppress them. Elizabeth, as Supreme Governor of the Church, had her answer, 
Grendel was confined to house arrest. He ceased to operate as Archbishop of Canterbury, and all his salary was taken from him and diverted into the royal treasury. That is how Elizabeth resisted challenges to her government of the church. Elizabeth's new archbishop, beginning in 1583, was John Whitgift, a strong Calvinist and a strong ruler. He nonetheless understood his position as Archbishop of Canterbury in just the terms that Elizabeth wanted. He was going to be her strong right arm to execute discipline on her behalf wherever it needed to be exerted. Quite a number of ministers lost their livings for nonconformity. Others were imprisoned, and the Presbyteries were not allowed to exist. Clergy could assemble only in meetings to which their bishop called them. Since the bishops did not call them to diocesan synods at the time, they did not meet. And so Elizabeth's church went on the way she wanted it to. Later, under the Stuart monarchs, the pastoral tradition grew strong. Pressure against Puritans from prelates was relieved by the fact that William Laud, Charles I's Archbishop of Canterbury, who kept up the pressure as Charles' agent, was put in prison for a treasonable action in 1640. The pressure from the prelates relaxed, and immediately Puritan clergy in their parishes were in a position to evangelize and disciple, as well as conduct worship quite freely. England might have had a Presbyterian church order had it not been for Oliver Cromwell. The Long Parliament, called in 1640 and sitting until 1649, has set up the Westminster Assembly which, as mentioned, was 90% Anglican clergy, with a few other clergy from Scotland and one or two who had been ordained in Holland. Their mandate was, first of all, to produce an order for public worship that could replace the prayer book. As soon as that order would be produced, the prayer book would be outlawed. That was Parliament's plan. The Presbyterian order was produced and the prayer book was duly outlawed in 1645. But, because the English Parliament and the Scottish Parliament fairly soon allied themselves against King Charles I, a plan emerged for binding together the three kingdoms of England, including Wales, Scotland, and Ireland. The three were to be bound together by a common Presbyterian church order, and the Westminster Assembly was told to draw that up. Part of that church order would be a common confession of faith. The Assembly was tasked with drafting that as well, and it produced the Westminster Confession. And, of course, for effective pastoral ministry, there must be catechisms, a children's catechism and an adult catechism, which the assembly created as well. Those documents would in due course be renounced by the Church of England at the time of the restoration of the monarch. Charles I had been executed in 1649, the restoration came in 1660, when Charles II reclaimed the crown. The Westminster Standards, though intended for all three kingdoms, would be left for the Scots and for all the Presbyterian world descended from the Scots. And the English Church would go back to the 39 Articles and a prayer book. Regrettably, the formalism that had so disfigured the English church as guided by Archbishop Laud would continue until the evangelical revival began in the 1700s. Before the Restoration, however, came the period of the Commonwealth, when Oliver Cromwell, with his new model army, won a decisive battle over royalist forces in 1645. 
He had effectively become, as people came to realize over the next couple of years, the holder of all executive power in England. He had an army under his command that he had defeated the royal army and could subdue all other challengers in England. King Charles was imprisoned in 1647, then beheaded in 1649. By 1653, Cromwell had been made Lord Protector, England's supreme ruler. He was still the man with the army. An attempt was made to persuade Cromwell to take the crown, an issue that split his advisors. Enough Puritan advisors opposed this move that he chose not to pursue it, though he quietly thought it a good idea. And John Owen, who was Cromwell's chaplain and top advisor had been against Cromwell taking the crown, found that he was chaplain and top advisor no longer. Meantime, in the church, there was no Presbyterian order and there never would be. Cromwell believed in independency, the right, the duty, even of every congregation under God, under Christ, to order its own affairs according to the scriptures. Suffice it to say that at that time the gospel flourished. Many Englishmen were converted. Many of them were discipled in the Puritan way. Baxter, writing in 1665 about this period in English history, the 1650s, expressed the view that if things had continued as they were under Cromwell for 25 years, England would have become a kingdom of saints and the paragon of the Christian world. That, right from Elizabeth's reign, had been part of the Puritan ideology. The Puritans were patriots. They believed England had a destiny of its own to fulfill. They believed this originally because England, unlike other countries where the Reformation had gone, was free from a civil war about religion. This sense of England's special vocation was reinforced by the outcome of the Spanish Armada. In 1588, the Pope put Philip II of Spain, previously the husband of Mary Tudor, to mount an invasion force meant to reduce England to papal obedience. The galleons in which the invasion force was being conveyed to England were met by the British Navy and defeated. Then came a storm, and those galleons that had not been sunk in the battle in the English Channel were wrecked off the coast of Ireland. It seemed to the Puritans, as to other Englishmen, a marvelous deliverance and a sign that God was on England's side. But for what? asked the Puritans. Their answer? For the conversion of England? For the discipling of England? For England to fulfill the vocations spelled out for Israel in Old Testament times. The vocation of being a kingdom of saints that would be a paragon and an ideal for the world. The Puritans continued to believe this was England's calling. Baxter, for example, was echoing that sense of things when he said England could have become a kingdom of saints. England's calling would have been fulfilled, but it did not happen. The restoration took place. The Act of Uniformity, Religious Uniformity, which Parliament passed in 1662, had in its specific terms intended to squelch the Puritans and ensure that in matters social and political, they would have no influence in England for the future. The Act of Uniformity required, first, that every minister have Episcopal ordination in order to continue ministry in the Church of England. Many Puritans did not have that. They had been ordained presbyterially. Second, the minister should renounce as unlawful the Solemn League and Covenant, the Agreement of 1643, that England, Scotland, and Ireland would ally themselves politically with, with Presbyterian order in their churches. 
Also, every clergyman who wanted to continue ministering in England was to swear allegiance to the king and declare that any rebellion against the king was and always had been intrinsically unlawful. In other words, anyone who had been on the parliamentary side of the Civil War had to renounce that. Ministers also had to undertake to use the prayer book without change because the prayer book was all that it needed to be. Nearly 2,000 Puritan clergy could not conform to these requirements, and thus they left the Church of England. For a time, they thought God was calling them to maintain their ministry anyway. Though this was illegal, they gathered congregations and ministered to them. Local magistrates raised small troops of soldiers in the days before public police forces, and these troops broke up meetings and arrested clergy and other leaders in the congregation. Over 20,000 Puritans, lay and clerical, spent time in jail during the 24 years from 1665 until the Act of Toleration in 1689. By the time this Act of Toleration was passed, the outstanding Puritan leaders were no longer active. John Owens was dead, Richard Baxter was 74 and sickening, the Puritans had ceased to be a religious power in the land, just as they had ceased to be a political power in the land. For practical purposes, Puritanism was a spent force, and England lapsed into spiritual tuper until the evangelical awakening of the 1730s. Historical Factors Shaping Puritanism The overall cultural situation in the late 16th and 17th centuries meant a life that was tougher than we know today, and the expectation was that for a Christian, the toughness would not diminish. Life would continue to be harsh physically and otherwise. It was the age before aspirin and other painkillers, before anesthetics and any form of medication that reduced conscious pain. People lived with a lot of affliction. That is important to remember when you read about the Puritans and dig into their writings. It was the same, of course, for everyone else at the time, and this too is an important cultural fact to remember. By comparison, we have it easy, we have it soft, and that reflects itself inevitably in how we think about the Christian life, which we expect to be far easier than those Puritans and their contemporaries ever expected it to be. Theological Heritage of the Puritans The Puritans as theologians were Christ-centered, faith-focused, and regeneration-oriented. They were Christ-centered in an entirely reformational way. Christ is the God-man, God incarnate. Christ is the mediator. Christ was our substitute on the cross. Christ, the risen Lord, now sends the Holy Spirit and bestows the benefits of his death for us. Christ fills the Christian horizon. We worship the Father and the Son through Jesus Christ, as the New Testament says. That phrase, through Jesus Christ, covers an enormous amount of doctrine. Being Christ-centered, Puritan theology is faith-focused. Puritan theology, like Reformation theology, defines faith in terms of all that Christ is, according to the scriptures. Faith believes that he is there, he is real. He is the mediator, our hope, our friend, and we live our lives in fellowship with him. He is the one we are going to see and be with in glory. He must be the focus of our love, just as he must be the focus of our trust. All of that is faith. The reformers were strong on that, as were the Puritans. However, Puritan theology was regeneration-oriented to a greater extent than any 16th century version of the Reformation faith. The Puritan idea of regeneration is, in fact, the idea that evangelicals 
later learned and today have inherited. In terms of Jesus' picture of the new birth, which he laid before Nicodemus, the heart is changed in a way that is inexplicable, considering the way one was before. Some psychological changes can be explained by what went before, but regeneration cannot be. Regeneration is a work of new creation wrought by the Spirit of God involving union with the risen, glorified Christ, union in such a sense that his risen life now pours into us. The effect of regeneration is spiritual alertness, awareness of the reality of Christ. Faith flows out of this change of heart. So does repentance. So does every quality and every dimension of Christian discipleship. We are new creatures in Christ, living out this change of heart, becoming, as Luther said, little Christs to each other. That is, treating each other as Christ has treated us and as he treated others in his day and as Christ will treat them still. All this is the life of regeneration, spontaneously expressing itself through the discipline to which we consciously commit ourselves. The disciplines of the Christian life, the disciplines of prayer, of self-control, of regular worship, of virtue, and so on. Puritan teaching on the Christian life is very strong on the ministry of the indwelling spirit, sustaining all this, and, in the first instance, generating the regeneration. Puritan teaching on the Christian life centers on regeneration without fail. Those who are born again are in a faithful union with Jesus Christ. What is important is that they get deeper into it and become better at fighting off the influences from the world, the flesh, and the devil. Puritans taught much on the regenerate life, often turning their sermons into devotional works. So when you study the Puritans, you find a great deal of teaching about the new life in Christ. Supralapisarian Theology among the Puritans, supralapisarian theology was a fashionable understanding of the sovereignty of God. It originally possessed the minds of Puritan thinkers from the time of Perkins and the 1580s, when he was publishing and teaching in Cambridge. Its influence continued until about 1620. Supralapisarianism is the doctrine that since God is certainly sovereign in everything, God is certainly sovereign in election, and non-election or reprobation. That is the choice of those who will be saved in the determining of who will not be. After 1620, this idea was adjusted by most Puritans. The further thinking was that God was sovereign even in Adam's fall, which was part of his plan. The fall was as much an expression of the sovereignty of God as is now the conversion of a Christian and the virtues of the good works of the Christian wrought in him through the Holy Spirit. In that word, supralapisarian, supra is a Latin prefix meaning above, and the rest of the word comes from the Latin lapsus, which means fall, in reference to the fall of Adam. The point made in supralapisarian theology is that God's sovereign plan for everything he would do, everything that would therefore happen in the world he would create, was formed above the fall, that is, above the concept or the foresight of the fall, and the fall was part of the plan. This position is difficult to maintain without implying that God is the author of sin. Superlapisarian theologians had their own way of evading that conclusion, but in common sense, reformed thinking is at least hard to avoid. Puritans spent a generation 
between the 1580s and 1620, embracing superlapisarianism, which was always taught by Theodore Beza, Calvin's successor in Geneva, who lived until 1605. But then the Puritans retreated from it. Why did this happen? The answer is rooted in the fact that over the winter of 1618-1619, the Synod of Dort had met. Representatives from all the Reformed churches in Western Europe gathered in Dortrecht, Holland, to counter the five key points of the doctrine of Arminianism, named after the man who had first formulated it, Jacobus Arminius, the Latinized form, or in Dutch, Jacob Hermansoon. The Synod of Dort produced an elaborate report affirming what are now called the Five Points of Calvinism. The Synod of Dort did not, however, commit itself to a superlapisarian view, though some of the Dutchmen said that view is logical. The Synod instead took this line. The relation between the sovereignty of God and the fall of humanity is a mystery, which is beyond us to plumb and resolve. When asked how these two realities relate to each other, we have to say that we do not know. We know the world was not out of God's control when Adam fell. We know Adam fell by his own fault, his own choice to sin, egged on, of course, by Eve. But we do not know how theologically we should relate the event of the fall to the absolute sovereignty of God. We have no formula for it, and we do not intend to produce one. Because what is said about election and reprobation in the scriptures is all with reference to the fallen race to which we belong. When scripture speaks of election, it is presented as a gracious choice whereby God chooses for salvation people who do not deserve it. They deserve to be condemned and rejected. And when reprobation is spoken of, as in Romans 9, it is very plain that the reprobate do deserve it because, like Pharaoh, they are fighting God all the time. So these are the certainties, said the Synod of Dort, and we affirm the reality of election and reprobation in terms of what the Bible writers have in view, namely, a fallen race. In theology, we do not presume to say anything about how the fall fits in with the larger plan of God. That position was called infralapsisarianism. Infra being a Latin prefix meaning below or subsequent to. The thought is that we theologize about election and reprobation the way the New Testament does, in designing a fallen race and not presuming to know anything more. The superlapisarian doctrine can logically be viewed as saying that God appears to like a division, as if when he created the world, God wanted to have some people blessed for the glory of his race and other people damned for the glory of his justice. Infralapisarians would not say anything of the sort. They instead say that all we know from scripture is that our race has fallen, and against the background, God has chosen a great multitude to save. Not everybody, that is true, but many. And we leave the matter there while, for the rest of our lives, we give thanks that we who have come to faith and repentance are among those who rejoice. Covenant Theology the essence of covenant theology is that the choice God makes is established by promise and commitment on God's part, which requires promise and commitment on our part. The analogy is the marriage covenant, in which a man says to a woman, I am yours and you are mine, and she says to him, I am yours and you are mine. And so it is presented in scripture where the marriage picture is constantly invoked. 
Paul does this in Ephesians 5 where he says he is speaking of Christ and the church when talking about husbands and wives. And of course the marriage picture is in the book of Hosea. The prophet's ups and downs of marriage are taken as an acted model of how God in his grace deals with unfaithful people. Not giving them up, though they deserve to be given up, and it hurts to hang on to them when his love is spurned. This is what covenant theology means. The relation between every Christian and the triune Lord is a covenant relation. I am yours, you are mine. The relation between the Lord Jesus and the church is a covenant relation. I am yours, you are mine. Our relationship with the Lord Jesus as mediator is equally, of course, a relation between the triune God and his children. The sacraments are covenant ordinances. Evangelical theology has regularly viewed baptism and the Lord's Supper as seals of the covenant. They are memorial rites that Jesus has instituted in which the outward and visible sign is plain. The water of baptism can be seen and felt. The bread and wine of communion can be seen and tasted. Our senses are engaged. We cannot doubt the reality of the visible and tangible. The visible guarantees the equal reality of the invisible. The combination of giving and receiving of the sacramental sign embodies, models, and displays the covenant bond that says, I take you, you take me, I am yours, you are mine. Covenant theology is, I believe, a biblical form of theology. The Westminster Confession from the 1640s embodies it, just as the Synod of Dort embodied it in 1618 to 1619. When you study a classic Puritan theologian like John Owen, you find covenant theology through and through. Owen was an independent. He came to dislike the Church of England, but within Anglicanism, those in the Puritan tradition embraced covenant theology, and it became their way of expressing the sovereign grace of God and the salvation of sinners. Devotional Theology Beyond question, Richard Baxter and John Bunyan were the two top devotional theologians in Puritanism. This devotion, of course, had to do with discipleship, the spiritual disciplines, worship, prayer, communion with God, and obedience to God, discussed under various headings in this chapter. Puritan Spirituality Puritan spirituality was marked by humility, receptivity, doxology, and energy. The Puritan's humility was the acknowledgement that man is small, God is great. As for receptivity, their attitude was to receive anything scripture teaches and to labor as a matter of habit of mind to see God everywhere in everything that happens in all his creatures and in the beauty of the earth. The Puritans were receptive to providence. Everything that happens means something, just as scripture affirms. For those who love God, all things work together for good. Romans 8.28 that is a way of affirming that God controls everything that happens. The Puritans were saying, in effect, we will read the book of Providence as far as we can. A lot of what happens we cannot understand, but when Providence brings blessing to Christians and answers to prayer, or when, on the other hand, it brings a comeuppance to people who have defied God and are on the path that leads to hell, then we can read that page from Providence and see what these happenings mean. The Puritans spent a lot of time thinking along those lines. Doxology means honoring God, turning all life into worship, seeing it all as praise. That was the Puritan way. Everything must make for the praise of God. 
Such praise of God means our praise of him. In the first instance and second, praise from the angels. Energy is the fourth quality of Puritan spirituality. The Puritans were people with great energy. If you read the lives of the Puritans, you will see and marvel at this expression of the Protestant work ethic. The Puritans, who were mainstream Protestants at this point, believed that God made us to work and that idleness opens the door to Satan to come in and mess up our lives. Responsible work as a safeguard against sin. The Puritans thought that and taught it. They said that everyone must have a calling. Everyone, that is, must be clear on what useful work he or she has been put in the world to do and must labor to do as well. That is the Puritan idea of a vocation. It does not have to be wage-earning employment. Being a wife and mother and homemaker is as much a calling, according to the Puritan teaching, as being the family breadwinner. Fulfilling your calling demands all the energy you have. That means not sleeping more than you need. It also means resting on Sundays, observing the Sabbath principle, so that you can work flat out during the week. And that's pretty much the Puritan attitude. Every now and then, Puritans would rebuke people who, because they had money, were able to live at leisure without having to work. That is very bad for you, said the Puritans. Baxter said as much in print, and presumably from the pulpit as well. Everyone must have a calling, the Puritans said. And as you give yourself to fulfill your calling and serve God by serving others and doing good in the world, enriching the world, making it a better place than you found it, bringing up your family to love and fear the Lord, you will find that as you pray for power to do it well, energy will be given you for that purpose, and you will be enabled to work. And when you find your vocation, you are fulfilled in it. When you are working in your calling to the glory of God, it is creativity, and it is personal fulfillment. That is the temper of Puritan piety. It does not languish, and it is not lazy. Puritan spirituality has a landscape that is theological. Life is thought out and lived in terms of keeping before your mind those four convictions, humility, receptivity, doxology, and energy. Holiness. When I am teaching on Puritanism, I often say that it is a holiness movement. The call is to holiness in personal life, holiness in family life, holiness in church life, holiness in business, holiness to the Lord, and everything. Puritans often put it that way. God is sovereign and God is holy. Humanness is a great dignity because we were made for fellowship with God, just as humanness is dreadfully scarred by sin. While God is holy, marked by sanctity, so holiness and sanctity must mark us. I have discussed the Christian's battle against sin and Satan. It was the Puritan's sense that holiness is so enormously important that made them sensitive to the way sin and Satan were trying to get them off track. They were strong on this, just as they were strong on the love and lordship of Christ, on the light and power of the Spirit. The path of Puritan piety went from regeneration to sanctification, living the life of regeneration by doing the two things, mortification and vivification, that Calvin stresses so strongly in his account of the Christian life in his Institutes, Book 3. 
Mortification means drawing on the resources of God for the weakening and ideally the killing of sin in your system. This work is never finished. It is meant to be ongoing all through this life. It is a matter, when you get right down to it, of watching and praying, of invoking the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit to give you strength to resist sin in every regard. Vivification is a matter of practicing the different Christian virtues, the different facets of Christ-likeness that are listed for us as the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22-23, love, joy, peace, kindness, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Communion with God and one another. The Puritans taught that you live a life of faithful prayer and practicing the Lord's presence from morning till night, practicing his presence in an intimate way. And communion with Christians means worship with them and fellowship with them. As you talk with other believers about divine things, you are strengthened by drawing on their wisdom. We simply call it fellowship. Within the fellowship, you need a bosom friend, said the Puritans. Today, we sometimes call that an accountability relationship because the business of such a close friend is to know all about you and to love you just the same, to pray for you regularly and to ask you regularly how you are getting on in your Christian pilgrimage. It is also a mentoring relationship in which people commit themselves to each other. For the Puritans, this was regularly a two-way mentoring, not exclusively, but regularly. They made themselves accountable to each other. In practical terms, just as I rely on you to pray for my current needs and situations, so I promise in advance to answer you honestly when you ask how my situation is developing, what my needs are now, and whether I am winning victories or experiencing defeats. Long before the 21st century, Christians knew about accountability relationships and deep spiritual friendships. Puritans knew all about them and encouraged them. Dying well. The Puritans believed that the way to crown a life of faithful walking with Christ was to die well. What did that mean? To start with, it meant not dying in unconsciousness, having been put to sleep by some kind of medication. People in those days died in a state of consciousness, and often in a state of pain. The Puritans essentially said it is part of your calling to prepare to die, to be ready to leave this world whenever the Lord calls you home and to be prepared to seek the Lord's upholding in the pain of dying and the surface-level misery that the pain is going to bring. It is no fun to die. The Puritans knew that. Most people died at home, of course, in those days. That made home a different place from what home is for most people today, because most of us live in homes where, as far as we know, nobody has ever died. People today more commonly die in hospitals. But in the Puritan home, people died with family members present, praying, singing hymns and psalms, and asking the dying person how he or she was doing in the process. They would wait to see what the dying person would say as the Lord Jesus took this person to himself and to the glory beyond this world, the intermediate state, as theologians called it. Jesus would be drawing this person to himself through the veil, as they used to say, and in that process, a person might very well, so they thought, see spiritual realities more clearly than ever before and tell the gathered family of something of what he or she saw. So dying words among the Puritans were cherished because it was thought that they came from a specially close relation to Christ. 
This interest in dying words has been mocked and parodied, but I do not think the Puritans were wrong about this. The Path of Puritan Discipleship The Puritans emphasized the warrior-pilgrim self-image, which I believe is something healthy to have. Likewise, the emphasis running through all Puritan teaching on the Bible and how it applies to life, the stress on the educating and cherishing of conscience, is something all of us need. The sanctifying of relationships, all relationships, is again something we all need, though it is a familiar theme nowadays in a way that some of these other themes are not. Another Puritan theme is the primacy of joy and praise, to be always rejoicing. That is how it is supposed to be. And real Puritans, the real Puritans of history, were like that. They were not sourpusses. They were believers who went through life filled with joy and praise, peace and adoration. Back to Puritan character. And that brings us again to John Drees, the character of an old English Puritan or nonconformist, which I will quote. The old English Puritan was such an one that honored God above all and under God gave everyone his due. End quote. That is a 17th century way of expressing that he was a just man. Justice in those days was defined as it should be in every age, as giving everyone his or her due. His first care was to serve God, and therein he did not what was good in his own, but in God's sight, making the word of God the rule of his worship. He highly esteemed order in the house of God. He was happy, in other words, to have a prayer book, an established pattern of worship, but he would not, under color of that, submit to superstitious rites, which are superfluous and perish in their use. Such rites to the old English Puritan seemed to be spiritual stumbling blocks. He made conscience of all God's ordinances, that is, he neglected none, though some he esteemed of more consequence, more importance. He had a sense of proportion. Some things were more important than others. Puritans are sometimes lampooned as if they had no sense of proportion, as if every little thing was as a major issue. It was not so. He was much in prayer with it, he began, and closed the day. In it he was exercised in his closet, the room where he went on his own and shut the door. Family and public assembly and church he prayed from his own heart along with the minister and the congregation. He esteemed that manner of prayer best, whereby the gift of God expressions were varied according to present wants and occasions. In other words, the Puritan valued extemporary prayer about the immediate situation. Liturgical prayers, as in the prayer book, are by nature couched in generalities which, as you pray the prayers, you are intended to apply in thought to your own particular needs. But when you pray extemporarily, you can be quite specific about the immediate needs you are bringing to God. And here we are being told that the Puritans appreciated that. Puritan pastors, as a matter of fact, when they have finished reading the prayer book service, used to regularly engage in intercessory prayer at length from the pulpit before they began preaching. Gree again observes that the old English Puritan did not account set forms unlawful in the way that some Latter-day Evangelicals do, I am afraid. Therefore, in that circumstance of the church where set forms were required, he did not wholly reject the liturgy, but the corruption of it. 
he esteemed reading of the word, reading scripture, which is required in all Anglican prayer book services, an ordinance of God, both in private and public, but he did not account reading to be preaching. In regard to that last point, Richard Hooker had argued that when you read scripture in public, it is God preaching. You are simply relaying his sermon. And therefore, the Puritan is not entitled to say that there is no preaching unless a text is expounded. At 400 years distance, I myself am a both-and man at this point. I am all in favor of understanding the public reading of scriptures, hearing God preach, and the Bible ought to be read in public in a way which shows that the reader knows that God is preaching through the reading of the divine word. This does not always happen, and it is sad when it does not, when scripture is read in a way that makes it hard to hear it as God's preaching. But I also believe that every worship service will be the richer if there is exposition. A homily, a sermon, a comment, call it what you like. I think most of the historical Puritans were also both and on this point, when you get right down to it. In saying that the old English Puritan did not account reading to be preaching, Drie offers a surface-level rebuttal of Hooker's point. It is as if the Puritan is saying, just listening to the word read because it is God's preaching is not the sort of preaching I am talking about. Jury continues, he accounted perspicuity, that is clarity, the best grace of a preacher, and that method of preaching best with was most helpful to understanding, affection, and memory. In other words, it is best when a preacher's spoken words are so arranged that everything is understood. By affection, Jury refers to the good and godly feelings about the truth that are evoked. Puritans believed that on the Lord's Day, when you went home from church, the family over a meal, as well as after, which had discussed the sermon, repeating it was their expression. Father was to check, first of all, that everybody had remembered all the points, and then all would discuss it. I do not believe this happens much among evangelicals today, and I expect we are the poorer for it. Jury goes on, the Lord's day he esteemed a divine ordinance, and rest on it necessary so far as that induced to holiness. He was very conscientious in the observance of that day as the mart day, market day, of the soul. Every village in town in those days had a market day during the week when all the people with anything to sell would set up their stalls and sell it. It was the 17th century equivalent of our going into a department store where we can get everything. This was a matter of practicality because bringing in goods from farms and homes scattered around the country was not a practical thing to attempt every weekday in that horse and cart era. So they did it once a week. Market day was a great day and the Puritans saw the Sabbath as just such a great day for the soul. The day when you stock up with spiritual provisions to see you through the coming week. People today seldom think of what they hear from the pulpit on Sunday as provisions for the days ahead, but that in fact was the Puritan idea. Many Puritans, by the way, were employed as lecturers, that is, auxiliary preachers, on market days in the period between 1570 and 1640. And everybody coming to the market was encouraged also to come hear the sermon. We return to Jury, the sacrament of baptism he received in infancy. He looked back to it in age to answer his engagements and claim his privileges. What is promised in baptism does not become reality to you unless you are believing. 
It is through faith that you enjoy the blessings and the engagements, that is, responding to Christ the Lord with a fresh outburst of gratitude and commitment. The Lord's Supper, he accounts as part of his soul's food, to which he labored to keep an appetite. He esteemed it an ordinance of nearest communication with Christ, so requiring most exact preparation. Puritans would spend Saturday evening going over the past week and making sure they would come to the Lord's Supper the next morning in a spirit of penitence and faith. Penitence for wrongdoing and faith as they looked to the Lord to strengthen them against temptation in the future. He accounted religion and engagement to duty. The best Christians should be the best husbands, best wives, best parents, best children, best masters, best servants, best magistrates, best subjects, and the doctrine of God might be adorned, not blasphemed. Holiness across the board was the Puritan's concern. His family, he endeavored to make a church, both in regard of persons and exercises. In other words, there would be family worship, and the Puritan father of the family would try to ensure that all the family became believers. He would admit none into it, into the family, a reference to employing household servants, but such as feared God, and laboring that those who were born in it might be born again unto God. He was a man of a tender heart, not only in regard of his own sin, but others' misery, not counting mercy arbitrary, but a necessary duty. He sought to mercifully serve others as Christ would, wherein as he prayed for wisdom to direct him, so he studied for cheerfulness and bounty, generosity to act. He was a philanthropist up to the limit of his resources. In his habit, meaning his clothes, not his behavior, he avoided costliness and vanity, not exceeding his degree in civility, not dressing as if he were an aristocrat, nor declining what suited with Christianity, desiring in all things to express gravity. Gravity means that he would take life seriously. It does not mean that he would never crack a joke. Puritan biographies state explicitly that many Puritans were quite witty. Concluding this description of the old English, Dries says that his whole life he accounted a warfare where Christ was his captain. The Puritan warrior's armor, Dries, was prayer and tears. His battle flag was the cross, and his motto was Vincit qui patitur, Latin for he conquers who endures. Thank you all for tuning in and listening to this week's episode of catacomb theology stay tuned for next week um we will be having an interview with one of our writers and he is going to be discussing a wonderful topic that is quite semi-controversial not very controversial but um i will say to the evangelies in the crowd it's a um near and dear to their hearts but i think a very good and hard conversation needs to be had that he handles wonderfully and i cannot wait to get that out to the rest of you next week but until then um i pray you all have a wonderful rest of your week i pray that you will um continue to show dedication to christ in your lives and that you will continue to pray for us and bless us with your support Thank you all for tuning in, and I will see you on the next episode of Catacomb Theology.